I'm Mike Rigby. Greetings and welcome to Eastern Promise. This week, you join us for the third and final roundtable of the Great Eastern Promise train adventure as four titans of innovation, agritech, research and development talk about boosting the scientific synergies between Norwich and Cambridge. On this final roundtable, Ros Bird of Anglia Innovation Partnerships, Belinda Clark of Agritech E, Fiona Lettis of the University of East Anglia, and Douglas Cuff of IQHQ all share their thoughts on the opportunities for collaboration. A perfect example of this is the Smart Emerging Technologies Institute, and I'll talk to Professor Gerard Parr, MBE, of the University of East Anglia regarding this groundbreaking project. And finally, take my hand as I tiptoe through your tales of terror as you share your scariest places in the east of England in this week's Crowd Sorcery. Before all that, it's time for Eastern Promise to bring you the latest news from across the region. Listeners of long-standing may remember my chat with Eliza Delph, an incredibly talented Norwich-based singer-songwriter of folk noir, with a heavy hint of gothic drama. In our chat, she talked us through her favourite tracks on her acclaimed debut album, Into the Wilderness. Well, as trick-or-treaters spill out across darkened neighbourhoods, under the watchful gaze of flickering jack-o'-lanterns, Eliza offers up a new, spine-tingling Halloween treat. The Blackberry Thief EP features three songs taken from Into the Wilderness, plus two previously unreleased bonus tracks. The EP opens with the graceful folk elegy, Stealing My Fear Away, followed by my personal favourite, My Familiar. Take a listen. Found at the edge of a woman and left a little broken and a little bit saved, struck down and dazed, struck down and dazed. Blackberry Thief EP is available to download from Bandcamp and directly from Eliza's website, and can also be streamed from Spotify, Apple Music, and other online purveyors of fine music. It's strongly recommended. Do please take a listen, and you can find out more about Eliza at her website, www.elizadelf.com. Back piece by piece, I steal the blood back from the beast. I take the most, I give the least. This woman will not fall. 
the Enterprise Centre, known to many listeners as a leading business hub at the University of East Anglia, has been recognised for its continued contribution to the design of top-quality, environmentally sustainable office space by securing the Test of Time Award. This coveted honour was bestowed by the highly regarded British Council for Offices, which researches, develops and communicates best practice in all aspects of the office sector. The Enterprise Centre was honoured at a glittering ceremony on the evening of 4th of October at the Grosvenor House Hotel London. This marks the fifth award for the Enterprise Centre from the British Council for Offices, with two regional and two national awards bestowed in 2016, just after the building opened. Commercial Officer for the Enterprise Centre, Angela MacDonald, said, We take great pride in the quality and high standards that we offer to the local business community, students and academics, and we are delighted to have these recognised at a national level. And that was the news for episode 41 of Eastern Promise. Send your stories to me at newsdesk at easternpromise.site. That's site as in website. In early October 2022, Eastern Promise, with amazing support from Norwich Research Park, Ridgen Partners and Carter Jonas, enticed an amazing group of scientists, experts and thinkers to join us in a unique networking event with an unusual location, the 11.27am train from Norwich to Cambridge. And this wasn't just a chance for them to meet and chat. It was an opportunity for Eastern Promise to listen to their views on the physical, commercial and scientific links connecting Cambridge and Norwich. Over the last few weeks, we've heard from Greater Anglia, Transport East, Breckland Council, Norfolk Chambers of Commerce, Carter Jonas and Nelson Spirit about the scale of the opportunity linking the two cities and the need for Norwich to be bolder in its approach to the Cambridge ecosystem. And now it's time to hear from the research and development community. From Fiona Lettis, Pro-Vice-Chancellor for Innovation at the University of East Anglia. From Belinda Clark, Director of Agritech E. From Douglas Cuff, Vice President of Scientific Property Developer, IQHQ. And Ros Bird, Chief Executive of Anglia Innovation Partnerships, the company that runs the Norwich Research Park. Over to Ros Bird. Okay, so um, we're all on the train together, heading off to Cambridge from Norwich, and we picked up some people along the way, and we've got some people on the train with us from the Cambridge cluster, and it's been such good fun introducing people that haven't met before and who can definitely do some good work together in the future. And Mike is currently talking to the Lookies cameras, which is great. So I'm Ros Bird. I'm the uh, chief exec of Anglo Innovation Partnership with a sort of science park management entity for Norwich Research Park. And I did used to work in Cambridge as well. I've loved every minute of working in Cambridge and, and now in Norwich. Fiona, do you want to say? Hey, so my name's 
Fiona Lettis and I'm Pro Vice-Chancellor for Research and Innovation at the University of East Anglia or UAA, UVA as we like to be known and um, in that role I look after the research that we do across the university and also our, on the innovation side our non-academic partnerships, our business relationships and the way we commercialise and make our, use, our research useful and usable by others. I'm the director of Agritech E, which is a membership network organisation bringing together the farmers and growers, the tech developers, the researchers and that whole innovation ecosystem to get new tech, new ideas out onto farms. Now personally, my whole career has been split, well, my, my whole education has been split between Norwich and Cambridge, Norwich girl by birth did some uh, time in Cambridge, back to Norwich for a PhD, so I've been up and down this, uh, this Norwich to Cambridge route many, many times in my life. And then we've got another guest with us from Cambridge and, and further afield you'll be able to tell by yeah, his accent. So, uh, my name is Douglas Cuff, I'm the VP of UK Real Estate for IQHQ. Uh, we're a life science developer, uh, developing uh, research space for life science companies in key clusters uh, in the US and we have our first opportunity in Cambridge on the Science Park and uh, I've known Roz for about a decade when I was on the team that bought Granite Park from Roz and her team. So it's uh, what I find really fascinating. And, and what I really love about working in Cambridge, you know, is you bump into people all the time and everyone knows everyone and the network is so tight and it's not just Cambridge, it does include Norwich, it includes wider areas around it. And there's more opportunities for us now from this moment onwards to extend that network and encourage more and more networking between us and yeah. develop those opportunities and, and inspire each other by our difference. But I think Fiona, if we could come to you first and talking from your experience of collaboration that already goes on between Cambridge and Norwich, what what what? What's yes, happening? At UEA, we've worked with Cambridge colleagues at, at the University in Cambridge um, on lots and lots of different interesting, exciting projects. We've worked across medicine and health, we've worked across the arts and humanities, social sciences, and actually, um, in a on average, in a year, our, our academics at UEA working with Cambridge academics will publish around 150 to 200 papers that are co-authored and collaborative um, research. And also, uh, we work with them on funded grants as well, and we've done over the last 10 or so years probably about £20 million worth of collaborative grants. So that just shows some of the scale of activity and collaboration that already happens between UEA and Cambridge universities. But there's lots of opportunities to do much more, of course. Yeah, and you were saying about how those collaborations come about. It's quite organic, isn't it, where people meet each other and... For academics, it's about you want to work with the best people in your field, wherever they might be in the world. And um, so, yes, we're just really excited to work with whoever's doing those projects that we're excited about. And with um, Cambridge University, there's a lot of collaborations around the health area in particular. Um, so that's a real strength there. Um, we've also worked with them on more applied projects around the agritech space. I think Belinda can perhaps talk a little bit about the Ceres project where we've worked together with Cambridge and, and Agritech East E as well. Yeah, so uh, obviously this geography is, as we can see, going past on the train. Lots of fields, lots of straw bales. We're just seeing as we go past a bit of sugar beet. So this is very much the kind of crucible, the breadbasket, if you like, of uh, growing and production, but also amazing research and technology development. And really the heart of that is between Cambridge and Norwich. And uh, Fiona mentioned the Ceres project, which is a collaboration between uh, the University of Cambridge, University of East Anglia, and actually our colleagues just over the border into Lincolnshire 
here, still the wider east, uh, to help develop uh, investments, entrepreneurial thinking uh, into commercial application onto farm. There's also uh, a, a large cohort of PhD students around agri-robotics and engineering. We know there's not very many people that we see out here hoeing sugar beet. A lot of that is all automated now. And it's really the, the development of artificial intelligence, the School of Computer Science at UEA, the thinking there that's being applied now alongside the biology and the chemistry that's traditionally underpinned agricultural innovation. And from my point of view, um, coming from working in Cambridge, going away, coming back to work at Norwich Research Park, I just think there's so much opportunity, as you were saying, Fiona, for even more collaboration. And what I, what I absolutely love is bringing people together that you think, oh, if they knew each other, that'd be a powerful combination. And, and it is about inspiring each other by your difference and the things you're working on. And, and, it's, and it's also about looking for opportunities to collaborate. And I think some of the people that are on the train today know loads of companies that ought to then start engaging with each other. And they are doing it already and researchers are doing it, but we can do so much more, I think, of collaborate. And I was really excited when I heard that, that Doug was coming back to Cambridge because we know each other well and I know what a good guy is. And I was thinking there's some things that we can do, Doug, and we haven't even thought of them yet. Yeah, but you know, like do you want to... I've seen before, like... In my background is you know spending a lot of time in Kendall Square, and you look at Kendall Square being as ground zero for life science. And where's that in the U.S.? In Cambridge, Massachusetts. Oh, okay, yeah. Yep, and you know, next to MIT, uh, and everyone talks about how there's a collision of technologies there, uh, and that happens in Cambridge as well. But the one thing that Kendall Square doesn't have is the agritech piece, and 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 having access to land and farms, which I think is really really interesting. And when you think of healthcare on a broader spectrum, you put food in your body and you put drugs in your body, and it's all part of the same. The human body ecosystem. So it really is something that I think that Kendall Square lacks, which is I think it's a massive opportunity that Cambridge and Norwich has together, uh, which I think could should spur on more more opportunity. But I think the problem is no one knows about it quite yet. And I think events like this spur that and allow that to scream from the rooftops about how how amazing and interesting it really is, which hasn't happened historically in the past, at least not for me. I was going to say, Rose, we should probably talk a little bit about the different entities on the Norwich Research Park and how we yeah. all can collaborate uh, yeah, absolutely. at Norwich, but also then use that expertise to help yeah. bridge across to Cambridge. Yeah, exactly. So I think that the thing about Norwich Research Park, and so Anglo Innovation Partnership is like the science park entity, as I've said, um, but the, 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 the main thing about... We shall shortly arrive at Ely. We're shortly arriving at Ely. Going oh, I love Ely. We're going to get the cathedral. That's where I was born. Please take the Birmingham train and change at Leicester for onwards connections. For those who are travelling by the East Coast Main Line to destinations in the north of England, uh, take the train to Birmingham and change at Peterborough. So we've gone through Soham then, have we? Not on that way? Oh, that way. Where's the train station? I can't believe that. That's so cool. I feel like this is a very civilized version of Claire Balding's uh, uh, ramblings. You know, <laughs> in, instead of walking, you just to sit and, and enjoy the countryside. Yes, it's a new Radio 4 program, isn't it? <laughs> I'm up for it if you guys are. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? not on the train with, yeah. yeah. <laughs> on the train with innovation. Yeah. <laughs>
I was just talking about Norwich Research Park to say that um, we've got four research institutes, a university and a hospital all on one campus, all sharing a vision for the development of the whole of Norwich Research Park, maximising all the research and innovation, technology, technology platforms for societal benefit. Um, and the job that my role is to help add value to all of that work, campus perspective. The four research institutes, the university and hospital art, share a vision at the campus for working together for societal benefit, attracting uh, businesses of all kinds that want to come, be based there, benefit from the skills pool, benefit from collaboration with researchers. The point is that we can inspire Cambridge by what we're doing. We can raise awareness of all of the activity. Some of it is not well known. It's a beautiful yep. campus, you know, tucked in Norwich, which I think is also... Beautiful city. Yeah, exactly. You yeah, know? there's lots of key attributes, and I think it's making the most of that and raising awareness. And my view is that um, we need to raise awareness of the opportunities, of the science, of the technology, and then those people maybe in Cambridge or London or further afield who say, I didn't realise that is what's happening, that I need to be there. And that's the reason we want people to come, because they'll benefit from the science and the technology, the expertise and the skills pool. Um, and that, yeah, that's, the, that's the thing that we need to work on over the next few years, and that's, that's my, my job to do that. I'm just a bit inspired by the sign, uh, see it, say it, sorted, and I know that's in a safety uh, context, but actually in, in the context of what we're talking about, about collaboration, see it, Talk about it, yeah. sort it. Yeah, so absolutely. I'm kind of quite inspired by that in, in a, a different context around forging collaborations. You're right, Linda. I think it is about just doing it sometimes. Yeah. And maybe the point is that this train journey today is about us taking action rather than just talking about working together. And I think it's because the people now that are around the table, literally on this train, and the ones that are in the roles that where you can make a difference, we're, we're doers. We're people that love the strategy but want to see something happen. And that's what I'm excited by, taking action and doing things, like inviting Doug and saying, come and join us and meet, meet up. And us all taking the time out of our busy schedules to be here today to demonstrate that we are serious about this and things are going to happen. We are, we are going to make a difference. I want to um, come on to um, Mike's next question. And he says um, that he wants to, he wanted to read out um, something from a UKRI report entitled The UK's Research and Innovation Infrastructure, Opportunities to Grow Our Capability. And the quote is, many challenges or questions can only be addressed by bringing together unique combinations of partners and expertise from across academic business, government and, and, the, and nations, academia, sorry, business, government and nations. Our aim is to build a more connected landscape and enhance our capability through partnership working at all scales. And so it says parts of the landscape are well connected, but this connectivity is not consistent. And so there is the scope to more fully exploit our collective potential. Where is that scope and how do we foster that connectivity? Fiona, you're nodding. Yeah, that's something we've given a lot of thought to at the university and uh, we've started to organise ourselves around sort of grand challenges and key themes and we've just dis um, launching three key interdisciplinary themes around climate, um, health and creative. 
and those link into the areas that are important to us as a region. So we've got coastal communities and health inequalities to address there. We've obviously got a, a region that is the breadbasket of, of the UK, as it's sometimes called. So that sort of food and health links is really, really important as well. Obviously, we've got climate change, coastal erosion, the impact of climate on what we can grow and in the future. And then there's the creativity. So we've got um, a hugely creative campus famous for creative writing, but actually that lots of creative disciplines. And we need creativity to solve some of those big challenges we've got ahead around climate, around health, and all sorts of other um, interesting topics. And what's great about being in Norwich and close to Cambridge and London and so on, is that we do get to know each other. So like this morning, we all met and, and most of us knew each other or knew somebody who knew somebody. And it's really easy to, to connect, actually. If you compare the geography to the US, I mean, hopping on a train from from Norwich to Cambridge is nothing. That would be like getting from one side of something. Yeah. yeah. Going east to west Massachusetts, it's really hard. Yeah, yeah. it's just really hard to do. So, and, and actually, so those clusters are there. They might be a little bit nascent in some areas, but actually, there's ones that are developing quite fast as well. And you know, people like Belinda leading the charge on bringing people together and. Yeah, so I, th I think there's lots of opportunity. I think it's happening already, but I think there's more we could do. And I think actually we could be a showcase for UKRI in terms of what a region can do and how it can bring together a university, research organisations, business clusters, local government, central government, and so on. And so I think we've got all the ingredients. Yeah. We've baked some of them, but let's bake some more. Yeah. And one, there's, a, there's a guy called John Higgs. He's a sort of a historian and, and writer. And there's a book called Stranger Than We Can Imagine. And in that book, he talks about um, the 20th century and um, how it evolved and the sort of strange things that happened. And one of the things he talks about there, which I think is a really interesting concept, I think he's right, is he talks about the future. And he says the future already exists. It's just that it happens sporadically in pockets. So you have to identify the new ways of working and the new opportunities and bring it to your place. And I was reminded of that this week when I talked to David Dent um, about the um, way that he works, and he's writing a book about this at the moment, helping sectors to improve productivity by looking at other sectors and the ways that they work and the challenges and how they've met them and then bringing that to, and that's I don't know if you want to say anything about that Fiona say, who David in, is in that um, quote was unique combinations and actually I think that's what we can do really well is break down those barriers between different disciplines different expertise different sectors and yes David Dent's been, been great he's our entrepreneur in residence and he's helped to break down some of those barriers between academia and business so we don't always speak the same language we don't always work on the same time scale so sometimes we need a little bit of interpretation to enable those boundaries to be broken and those unique combinations to emerge. But I'm just really excited about those spaces in between. So if you think about climate and health, you know, they need to be talking to each other, people in those disciplines, in those sectors, because they're going to interact what we can grow, um, how, how we stay healthy in a changing world. All of those things are really important. We won't solve them from within a single sector or discipline. I don't think you need to. I think really, really, we were talking about this earlier, but the fuel for all of this to make it happen is access to capital. And there's even in today's climate, uh, there is still access to capital. And I think you guys are working to 
allow these entrepreneurs, allow these academics to find that and put put it together and then drive it forward, help them through the process of, 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 of creating sustainable businesses that will impact health, impact climate, impact agri-tech. So I think that's really particularly exciting. That was one of kind of my big takeaways of the day on, on, the, on the train journey. Yeah. For me as well, I think one of the big game changers would be if we properly engage with young people. So I do think that when we sit here today and when we're thinking about the things we've got on our desk and the stuff we did during the week, it, it, in a way it could be seen, and I, I freely admit this, is quite self-serving. You're sorting out your own job, your own career, and you're doing things that are going to help you and the objectives that you've got and the business strategy that you've signed up to. And that's all good, and we have to do that um, to get paid and, and get, get that tick that we need that we're doing the job we've been asked to do but I do think we need to think about the future we need to think about young people in school today what information they need and how we can help them to access all the great jobs and you know a lot of business people when you talk to them and I was at the Norfolk Limited uh, event on Tuesday um, there was a little sort of straw poll and they said um, what what worries you the most and it's always skills right at the top of the agenda skills 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 and you said one of the things I said and point I made was, um, I always do, is that um, if you haven't got 50% uh, women at all levels in your um, company, then there are barriers to entry. And if you go to a school and look at an assembly hall, you see how many females there are. It's 50% uh, um, in, in every class, pretty much. And so uh, why wouldn't you, in any industry, want all the best young people that are in school today to want to come and work with you? So I do think that... Um, as well as thinking about today and sharing good practice and 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 connecting the dots, we do need to think how do we promote um, all of the industry and and the uh, career opportunities to young people, and they're the future. It's that you say that. Let me make my own plug here. So IQHQ, we're over 50% women in our organization, and 54% is women and minorities. So uh, we kind of look at ourselves as a, a industry leader uh, for the sector, and so I do hope that we influence other organizations to push that because, to be honest, a woman's brain is just as smart as a man's brain, if not, if not even, even, even better. So I think yeah, it, it, yeah. it makes sense to, to do that. And, I'm well, and we've got great diversity at Norwich Research Park. I think it's 18 European uh, countries and 41 globe, you know, worldwide countries uh, are represented on the park in the workforce, people in all levels of, of, of job yeah, attracted. Amazing. And I, I was told recently that um, if you're into plant genetics and plant science, then John Innes Centre would be uh, on your bucket list of places to work in the, in your career. So there's, there's you know, some exciting... And we want to encourage our uh, young workforce to want to come and work with those people at Norwich Research Park. I think there's also a diversity piece that underpins the technology as well in that we need the data that's feeding the algorithms that is going to be informing a lot of the artificial intelligence that we're seeing across all of the sectors, whether it's drug discovery, whether it's climate change modelling, whether it's new ag chem for agri-tech, whether it's the robots that are going to be managing so much of our lives. We need those to be trained using a robust and representative data set, not just, uh, dare I say it, uh, one, one gender, uh, one ethnicity, uh, making sure that we actually have, have a, a future proof for the diversity that we want to embrace.
I'm just really, really pleased uh, Doug's here because I think one of the things, and you may have covered this, and forgive me, I'm sort of jumping in halfway, was uh, that's fascinating uh, a book by an, uh, an American economist um, whose name sadly escapes me, but she's following uh, a T-shirt, the, all the economies it encounters along the way, and it was talking about the uh, American cotton industry yep. in Texas and how there's a virtuous circle has developed between the uh, the, the cotton industry, its, its uh, associations, the local, uh, tech, I think Texas Tech, the, 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 the local university, etc., 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 and they've, they've they've kind of all feeding into to, to really to kick up a gear on the processes and drive that innovation. And we've got. I'm glad you're here, but because we've got that being formed again with food and agri-tech at the Food Enterprise Park, the UEA is a, a, a key part of that. How do we both grow those virtuous circles, do you think, and, and look to establish new ones? I think it's already starting to happen in certain businesses are now starting to really embrace that circular economy, not just because the optics are great uh, on it, but also because it's a proper cost saving. And increasingly, I think any businesses that are looking to gain investment has got to have that ESG, circular economy, reducing, exa exactly. And I think if one thing of the many lessons we've learned from the pandemic, seeing some empty supermarket shelves really brought home the need to ensure that these very complex supply chains are starting to be much more efficient and resilient and robust. How one does that, I think there's a lot of minds greater than mine doing that, but it's certainly clear that increased awareness enablers to ensure and support the collaborations have certainly got to be two of the great foundations to make that happen. Will also drive that. So if you, if the end user it wants to buy local and drives that, well then it'll of course it'll force the change. So I think educating the end user to, I have two types of oranges here, or I got apples and oranges. Well, the apples are local. The oranges are from Spain. Well, this was just driven down the road. So I want to buy these. And so that 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 kind of demand, whatever it is, whether it's a T-shirt, whether it's it's fruit or or, or whatever, uh, I think is is important. Do you have thoughts on that, Fiona? Oh, we have touched on some of this. I think it's just about bringing together those different sectors and businesses and letting those ideas collide a little bit. And, I, you know, we've got 17,000 students on our campus. They're young, they're full of bright ideas. We need to, we need to harness them at this point where, where they're open to lots of new ideas. And, in fact, they're driving us to be better and to think differently all of the time. And I think we just need to make sure we connect those um, students in with the businesses through internships, projects. But um, somebody also mentioned funding and just making sure we have mechanisms. So sometimes we find it hard to collaborate, but actually very, very small amounts of pump priming funds or initiatives or events can really help to, to catalyze and bring people together. So we need to make sure we have got some of that pump priming um, mechanisms. We've talked a, bit, a little bit about the Ceres project. Um, we've, we have projects where we can have innovation vouchers to enable academics to work with businesses. Um, and it just, just £5,000 can make a huge difference to what people can do together. So it doesn't have to be huge investment, although sometimes that really helps as well. But how, how can we creatively use relatively small amounts of pump priming, networking opportunities to bring together and explore these new ideas and think about supply chains differently, think about sectors differently, think about how technology can can make a difference in different, different ways, how ideas of circular economy, how, how do they work in different contexts? I think one of the key things that's, that's come out this morning is what an exciting opportunity there is between 
Cambridge and Norwich and how working in partnership, again, I've, I've likened it to a rope where there are lots of individual projects with the UEA, SETI, you know, Smart Enabling Technologies Institute being a really good example, where the, those links are there, but it's spinning them all together into something a bit more, a lot more durable and a lot stronger and a better narrative that says to the world, you know, come and look at us. What, you, absolutely. absolutely. One of the things we were talking about earlier is that this isn't just talk. Mm. The fact that we're physically on a train together when we've got we've had a busy week, all of us, you know, and there's nothing. But we want to come and be together and do this because, as well as having a good chat and talking about strategies, we want to take action and make these things happen. So, um, you know, talking about the concepts and the analogies and the ways that we worked you know, in, in our different locations, all good, but then we will take action to work together and, and, and it's a physical process. And I think, um, you know, there's so many key attributes in Cambridge. It's a well-understood market. There's the whole thing that's going on with Norwich with Agritech and with Norwich Research Park, the university is so much there going on and, it, and that we want to promote and, and raise awareness of. But it, and, unless you then take action and do stuff together, it's a bit meaningless. And that's the bit I'm really excited by because I know the people that are sitting around this table here, you know, Fiona and Doug and Belinda are all like me. They're like, yes, you know, we want to do good stuff together because it's our time to do that and take some action. And then that will inspire the people that will come after us. And I think we all want to look back and think, in this moment, we knew that we had some really good stuff that we were already doing, loads of good experience, and now we're going to collaborate in different ways. And it doesn't need to be insurmountable, it's just practical steps. Okay, well, with that, we've, we've got to, we've got to pack the equipment away so we can all bundle off the train at Cambridge and enjoy the Carter Jonas reception. But Rosbird AIP, Norwich Research Park, Belinda Clark, Agritech E, Fiona Lettuce for the University of Anglia, Doug Cuff from IQHQ, thank you ever so much for, 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 for sticking with it while I was down, down there. But Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. My thanks go to Ros, Fiona, Belinda and Doug, and to all the panellists you've heard from in the last two weeks, and to everyone who joined us on the train. At the same time this episode drops, I've also put out on the Eastern Promise podcast feed a three-in-one collector's special edition, where you can listen to all three panels back-to-back. The event was such a success. Plans are already underway for a bigger, brighter and bolder repeat this coming spring. And also a trip highlighting the links between Cambridge and Ipswich. Keep listening for more information or keep your eyes on my LinkedIn account. That is me, Mike Rigby, host and executive producer of Eastern Promise. It's easy to find. If you come across a Mike Rigby who seems impressive and accomplished, it's not me. Eastern Promise Roundtables conducted on the train from Norwich to Cambridge didn't only throw an audio spotlight on the huge potential of the Cambridge-Norwich Tech Corridor, patent pending. No, it also brought front and centre the many collaborations between universities and institutes that are already happening. The Smart Emerging Technologies Institute, or SETI, is an excellent example. A collaboration between Cambridge University the University of Essex and the University of East Anglia. It represents a truly unique project, a planned research and innovation initiative 
aiming to create the fastest collaborative research testbed in Europe. Head of the Computer Sciences School at the University of East Anglia, Professor Gerard Parr, MBE, leads on this project, and I asked him to tell me more about what I personally think is one of the most exciting projects currently being developed in our region. The, the Smart Immersion Technologies Institute, it very much sits in the levelling up agenda for the east of England, particularly on the technology side and the role of ICT in the region. So what I want to do is just go through a bit of scene setting of what is SETI, why have we come up with this uh, idea, who's involved and what the vision is. It all started in 2017 when the uh, BAS had the Science Innovation Audit for the east of England. And as a consequence of that, looking at life sciences, manufacturing, agri-tech, and obviously ICT, it became quite clear that we have opportunities to collaborate, collaborate more closely in the east of England. We've had lots of bilateral relationships between Essex and UEA, Essex and Cambridge, and vice versa, uh, and Cambridge and UEA. Uh, and indeed, I've worked with these institutions before I came here. Uh, but when I, when I arrived at UEA, I noticed that the collaboration framework wasn't as strong or at a scale that it could be. And so that set the scene for developing this idea of, of a, an institute that would pull together the research capabilities that we have, have within the respective institutions, but also engage with key industrial partners who have a research and innovation remit, looking primarily at ICT as an underpinning enabler for so many of the, the, the sectors that we take for granted today. And in fact, since 2017, 2018, we were working on the, the vision and strategy behind SETI. And of course, unfortunately, COVID hit and knocked everything for six. But we're now re-engaging with key stakeholders. And indeed, in that COVID period, I think it's fair to say that we all recognize the role of digital technologies in helping the economy and the society at large keep together to collaborate, uh, to move things more online, uh, working from home, all of the things that we now know uh, from, from remote education, online supply chain uh, activities and so forth, ICT has a key role to play. We look at the, the universities and the research parts and the wider business ecosystems that we have in the region. Of course, colleagues in Cambridge, world leading uh, uh, areas of, of research. At UBA, we have world-leading research, again, in key sectors linked to healthy ageing, energy, food and water, and indeed artificial intelligence, as it applies to a whole raft of other, other areas. And colleagues in the University of, of Essex, a UK data archive, very strong in computational intelligence, and very, very engaged with knowledge transfer partnerships under the Innovate UK programme. So that ecosystem of internationally leading research in areas relevant to the ICT agenda uh, is something to be leveraged. And then we take a look at the research parks that we have from Cambridge Science Park, Innovation Martlesham, Ethel Engineering and Norwich Research Park. Four initial uh, anchor positions, if you like, in the science and innovation ecosystem where there are spin-off companies, spin-in companies, as well as research institutes funded by uh, UK research and innovation themselves. So that, again, looking at this ecosystem that's on our doorstep uh, was another rationale for SETI bringing together this collaboration framework and at least understanding what was possible. It's important to realize that 
SETI is not about next generation broadband or wireless. It's about the underpinning research that will develop into those areas. Uh, so we're not providing commercial services. That's not what we're about. Uh, we want to go up, if you like, to technology readiness level seven. And that's where we can be involved with validation, verification, prototyping, benchmarking, and really pushing the bounds of the systems that we're developing and get some key performance data out of them to see if they're relevant, if they don't work at scale, if their energy consumption is too high, or indeed if their cyber resilience is very, very weak. These are very important areas for us. But you know, looking at how we can scale up and, and to understand how much data has been generated, what's the performance of the systems, we started looking at this and then say, okay, if we wanted to do this for Ipswich, for Norwich, citywide, what's really involved in terms of the way the network has to be designed uh, and issues to do with the amount of and volume of data that would be generated. And then we can scale it up. This is the whole issue that, that we really want to look at how we can start small and scale up through the prototyping test beds that we want to develop. So health is just a classic example. Uh, and the insights that we get from this would enable us to understand what is involved in the network design, what are the, the, the likely technology challenges that we have, what are the likely costs involved? Because you know all of these things cost money, but when we want to deploy them as part of the social care in the community, this could be an area of particular interest for county councils who have specific responsibility for, for social care in the community. County councils don't do research. They hope that the systems they deploy will work at scale and behave and be cyber robust. SETI, on the other hand, will help them get a lens on these technologies and to be able to quality assure what they're doing uh, before they're deployed uh, for real. And we think of agri-tech. You know, there's lots of technology now in farm machinery, uh, in milking parlors, production facilities, out literally in the field. So increasingly, there's a huge amount of digital transformation going on in the agri-tech sector itself. And, and to the extent that to trial, to test, to gain trust in these systems, this is really, really challenging for the agribusiness community. Uh, again, they need honest broker advice. They need to understand how these systems behave. And they need to understand where the failures might come about in terms of the way the systems have been developed, what data they're acquiring, where does that data go, uh, how do I cope with all of this imaging data and other like temperature data and so on. There's a variety of challenges here where all of this data is coming together. One of the exciting things to me is the synergy SETI has with a lot of either extant or emerging government policy. I mean, I did a, a paper on exactly where with the innovation strategy from Bayes, which I always think is should be the Department of Snooker. National data strategy, mission one, policy framework, policy paper. We want to support the development of infrastructure that makes data for research and development more available in a responsible way. I mean, hello, government, we're already here. Are you really enthused by the fact that government seems to be already looking for what SETI can offer? Yes, is, is the answer, and, and well, to a large degree, what we can see coming out of the SETI vision and plan is like a knowledge data exchange. Yeah. Because it's not just agri-business data for agri-business consumption. 
there could be data there linked from the energy sector or from supply chain that, okay, setting aside issues of GDPR and data privacy, there's a huge opportunity for integrating data into like a knowledge exchange that other sectors could dip in and, and extrapolate and integrate and get additional value yeah. from that. And this, I mean, this is something I think has been missing for some time because everyone just holds on to their own data for obvious reasons. Yes. Uh, either because they paid for it to be collated in the first place uh, or they, they, they're, they're, there's a fear that they may lose competitive uh, position. But for us, again, to be looking forward for the next 5, 10, 20 years in the east of England, there's so much value to be had in data sharing in the right context. Yes. And the ability for that to be leveraged by others, I think is really, really important. I, I think also what, what is important is, as well as that is the really high level of stakeholders you've got you've got involved. And that's so important. I mean, you talked about the Knowledge Gateway uh, in Essex. Actually, my next call after you is to talk about, um, you know, taking Eastern Promise to uh, that uh, institution to the to the Knowledge Gateway, um, and and see what what's going on there. We're also going out to Cambridge fairly soon, so it's 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 really exciting that you've got those those big names. And for inst- international investors, the Norwich Research Park, Cambridge, and the Knowledge Gateway, they're going to be huge, aren't they? Huge draw. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, in many ways, if you if you look back, the research triangle part in North Carolina is a classic example of something that happened before, you know, uh, North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Duke University, and so forth. When they came together to harness and leverage their research, research prowess, companies then wanted to come and set up shop. And from, from a standing start, they created a, a virtual science park with 30,000 people in it. Uh, it's actually expanded to me. It's one of the biggest research parks in the whole of the United States. And then not only that, for spin-outs, there were some indigenous companies that spun in and then international companies came and wanted to set up to be close to this ecosystem. And in many ways, you can also think about, you know, uh, cloud-based industries, data center activities. And again, there's an opportunity for us to really harness that because companies want to be co-located close to where the data assets are. Yes. In many cases, some people will say, well, a data center is just a barn with a couple of operators uh, and some pets. There's no real employment. Um, I would ask colleagues to look over at my friends in Dublin because Dublin and the whole data center agenda Look at how much employment has come as a consequence of that, and how many companies have come to be co-located. Yes, uh, not just for tax reasons, but for innovation opportunities yeah. around the data that they generate. You're absolutely right. I mean, I'm I'm really lucky. This podcast has listeners in the states. About fifteen percent of the people, hopefully, who are listening to us now, are in the USA. Some are in India. Some are in the EU. I mean, you've explained to me actually. I've always wondered. Because the breakdown I can get, it tells me where in the US people are listening. California and North Carolina have been the hub of the the US listenership. Hello to you, by the way, if you're if you're joining us from the USA. You've kind of alluded to this already, and I don't want to make you repeat yourself. But what is your your message to people who might be listening in those places about SETI? And well, when you look at the the partnership that we're we're wanting to leverage, you know, colleagues in Essex, 
Cambridge, uh, Adasford Park, and, and obviously my own university, we have world leading, internationally leading research going on in these institutions. We have the, 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 the scientists and the engineers are at the forefront of their research activities in, in related domains of machine learning, AI, 5G plus. Um, I mean, you mentioned India. I mean, I, I'm just now leading a, a new project uh, funded by EPSRC, the Engineering Physical Sciences Research Council, which is the equivalent of Department of Science and Technology in India, our National Science Foundation in the US. Uh, and it's for, uh, it's the UK-India Future Networks Initiative. So wow. we're looking at the next generation of internet in all its guises, looking at, you know, 5G plus 6G. What does this, as the numbers go on, what does it mean? We're just increasing the speed. Uh, we're adding more intelligence. We're adding more cyber resilience. We're adding more interoperability. But we're also reducing the energy consumption on the fly because we have to, because our networks do consume a lot of power. So as, as we look at the international side of things, we want to collaborate with folk. We're already doing that um, with, with, with uh, institutions around the world. But the SETI ecosystem could provide a very interesting uh, collaboration framework as we go forward and build upon it and then collaborate with colleagues, be it in, in the University of California, be it North Carolina, Duke University, be it with IIT, Indian Institute of Technology in, in Delhi. Uh, we're open for business. That's the other key thing here. I mean, whilst it's a research and innovation focus to be internationally leading, but to develop things at scale, we really want to put the East of England on the map for colleagues to come and collaborate with us. And not just academics, but also companies who may, as I say, have something they want to benchmark or to validate or to verify and maybe to deploy it um, in the wild, so-called, uh, for real, yeah. in, in, in the east of England, where we have lots of key stakeholders who really want to, to get engaged with this type of activity. When I've previously spoken to um, colleagues at involved in Sizewell, Sizewell C, and they've sort of expressed mild bemusement bordering on frustration, that just when you get a civil servant to understand what it is you're putting to them, the stand, the civil service cranks into gear, shifts everyone around, and you're faced with doing exactly the same over again with someone else. Now, I'm not, I'm absolutely not suggesting this is your experience. I'm just sort of trying to get what I want to get to uh, is what kind of conversations are you having with particularly the, those two departments, DCMS or DC, DDCMS and Bayes about driving this forward? Because as I say, you are offering so much that they want. So I, I would imagine that I would hope, and they bet they should be beating a path to your door. Well, we we, we do brief key colleagues. I mean, uh, the the science minister I'm led to understand is aware of what we're trying to do. Friend George Freeman, friend of the show. I I, I hope um, who we've yeah. interviewed before. He was our first first interview we put out. So yes, absolutely. And, and and so and interestingly, um, obviously George is, is 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 based in this region, but then we have the foreign secretary Liz Truss, who actually launched my project with India some months ago. Brilliant. Um, and and again, 
I suppose a key point is as we brief civil servants and the new Anglia LEP is, is, has been really, really supportive in, in yes. getting getting the word out. I suppose one of the things that it's, it's important to realise is that this part of the UK, I am led to understand, is the third largest contributor to Whitehall in terms of financing tax. Yeah. When it comes to levelling up, I'm not sure we're as level as we could be. <laughs> You're not the first person to, to suggest and, that on this and, show. And, and so what we what we're seeing is across the big sectors, you know, automotive, life science, agri-tech, energy, we are really, you know, pushing, punching above our whip. But we don't normally ask for very much. Yeah. And here we have a proposition that's not just ICT focused, it's really looking at how digital technologies going forward for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, how can they underpin and support the key sectors of importance to the east of England? Now, having said that, I think it's important to realise net zero is a challenge for the whole of the UK. Sustainable energy, the wind farms off the east of England coast are supporting the whole of the UK. Yeah. So the supply chain I mentioned with the ports and so on, with the trucks hurtling across the east of England, they're going to the north, they're going to Scotland, they're going everywhere. So in many ways, if we can facilitate mechanisms to help key sectors of importance to this region, by default, we're ha- helping the rest of the UK. Absolutely. So it's not a, it's not a, I'm trying to make sure people don't see this, oh, this is just an East of England challenge. It's never, I It's mean, something that we see for the whole of the UK. When I encountered this project at an earlier stage was that, you know, it was never kind of, this is just for the East of England, you people keep away. It's like, let us tell you. Let us tell you how it's done. Let us come and help you and do something similar, wherever you are, UK, Europe, worldwide. And and I think that's yeah. all, 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 all power to your elbow in that one. Well, this is it. And I mean, w- 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 the colleagues that I have assembled around me are all very well versed and experienced in international collaborations. Um, it's a case of maybe bringing it back home, for yeah. want of a better word. Because we're working with folk all over the world. And as I said at the, in my opening comments, when I first came here, it just struck me that, wow, we're doing all these collaborations internationally. And it was just fantastic. But surely to goodness, there's an opportunity to put a, a, a larger scale collaboration framework around the three main academic institutions in the region that are dual intensive. You know, we, we pride ourselves that we're leading on research and innovation, also providing excellent teaching. But we want to give opportunities for our graduates to uh, stay in the region yes. as opposed to just, you know, we give them the skills that can go anywhere in the world. That, that's, that's, a, that's a given. But we want to give them opportunities to say, hey, I, there's, a, there's a startup or there's some other research and innovation activity going on here. I want to be part of that. So there's definitely an international agenda for what we're doing. The plan of work that we're looking at is going to be underpinned by leading international uh, research because we want to be competitive. Yeah. You know, and we certainly want to go beyond journal publications and conference papers and so on. We really want to have as much impact as we can in the region. Uh, of course, this needs money. I mean, we will be going cap in hand to the government and back to your question there about civil servants and the move. Um, there is a, a timeliness to this, and we would hope that during this year we would be in before this year's out, we would be in a position to bring forward our idea as something that's shovel ready 
and, and then hope that government will uh, respond accordingly. In terms of local policymakers, um, is there more to do and how can we, is more to do to engage with them and how can we do that? Well, I suppose, obviously, with the LEP engagement, we, we, we are talking to key stakeholders in, in, in local government. Uh, obviously, you know, to have conversations with colleagues in NHS, to have conversations with colleagues in county councils who, you know, invariably are being asked to do a lot more themselves. They have a huge a list of uh, digital on, 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 on their, their entry. Uh, and again, whilst they may not be so involved in research and innovation, they certainly may want to be interested in validation and verification before systems are deployed to get that honest broker type mm. view or like a quality assurance badge because invariably companies will want to just sell county councils all sorts of technology. Uh, and it's only after they've been deployed that we realize that you know, things appear. Yeah. Whether it's the fact that it's a cyber risk or, or the fact that the systems, the operating systems are, are, are a bit flaky and that they, the systems are not reliable. Um, when you have systems that are being deployed and they're citizen facing, you can't afford any mistakes. So again, you know, we're, we're, we're having conversations with stakeholders in the key sectors that I've mentioned, just to make sure we can capture their requirements, because uh, they all have, they're all under pressure in different ways and digital transformation is a key challenge for a lot of them. Uh, and to the extent that there's issues of standardization, issues of cybersecurity, issues of cost, as well as uh, power, sustainability and power, power yeah. consumption, these are very important challenges that these other organizations really want help with. So part of our mission statement, if you like, is to make sure that we're, we're addressing as much as possible those particular requirements from those sectors uh, and to give at least some insight, independent insight into some of these uh, activities. So what's the next step? You talked about how you sort of picking up after the pandemic and, and re-engaging with, with various stakeholders. What's next? Well, we're pulling together, as I say, an update to the the plan of work. Uh, I mentioned that we're, you know, yes, we're engaging with the stakeholders just to to reset what their priorities are to see to what extent on the research and innovation aspect uh, we need to update our, our plan. We then obviously are looking at the international global challenges linked to next generation networks, linked to six G linked to the role of artificial intelligence to manage these systems, linking to new applications that can be assisting in key thematic areas, as well as all of the, the, the data ontologies, the data management side of things. And for us, we're looking at where there are, where, what are the big research questions that we need to answer? A lot of this you could wrap around and say, digital transformation for supply chain, agri-tech, health. What does it mean for those particular themes? Who needs to be involved? Where are the standards? Who has oversight? Who, who can say that this system is trustworthy and robust and will always provide accurate data 24-7 for a health professional? That's a huge statement to make when something could fail somewhere along the lines. So we're looking at the, the international landscape. We're looking at the UK priorities coming from government in terms of research and innovation. And it's not just the sectors that I've alluded to, 
you think of the space technology sector. Yeah. There is an opportunity for, for Norfolk and Suffolk in the east to come together to sort of, you know, look at where we have innovative companies and research that can support the, the space sector in the east of England. There's lots of good work going on in Southwest, Scotland and Wales and so on. Again, the east of England, uh, we really haven't shone too much of a light on the fantastic companies that are in this region yeah. doing internationally leading work Absolutely. for big, major, major uh, stakeholders in the space tech sector. But there again, imaging, data, communications, there are thematic areas there even from space and challenges that they have to deal with that sit nicely within the SETI framework. So we'll be engaging with, with that sector as well. That's fantastic. And I, I suppose my final question to you uh, really is, how can we help? How can we help you get this going? How can we help you bang the drum for the east of England? Well, I suppose, as I mentioned, you know, there will be a pound symbol for all of this and there will be an ask of government. It's really to get it on the radar of government officials who from time to time may want to understand, is there something cooking in a particular region that we should be hooking into? Uh, is there a shovel-ready proposition that yeah. can sustain jobs, help the local economy, and, get, and and also supporting key thematic areas that are of importance to the UK? Uh, Whoever is in charge of the checkbook, I should say, is someone we would like to be able to engage with when we're when our, when our proposition is is completely ready. So I really look forward to people engaging with me. If they can bring something to the table, fantastic. But we really want to understand uh, others that are out there that may want to partner with us or to be engaged with us going forward or just to be kept in touch uh, as, we, as we bring forward this, this development for the region. When do you expect that proposition to be ready to present to government? The timeline we're working to when we wrap up all of the stakeholder engagement, reflect on the programme of work, we would hope by we're now into May. Yep. Uh, I would say by the end of the summer in, in that region, um, we would hope to be in a position to say, look, here's something we'd like to take forward, or at least have it on the radar yeah. for those that are of interest uh, to look at place-based innovation and research. And again, what does the levelling up agenda mean for the East of England? Whoever's in charge of that strategy yeah. or the government uh, we'd really love if they would come and talk to us. We have certain unique assets in this region. Mm. We have certain unique sectors in this region. We, as I said, we look at food security, agribusiness. We look at, 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 at energy. Uh, you look at the supply chain. Those are activities and assets that this region is famous for. Yeah. But it's not just all consumed in the east of England. We're doing it for the whole of the UK. So if we can benefit these sectors in, in, in looking at their research and innovation needs, their next generation of digital transformation, anything we can do to help them be better prepared or to take the next steps in innovating in their own sector, it helps them for sure. It will help the East for sure. But ultimately, the rest of the UK will benefit. Professor Gerard Parr, to whom I am very grateful for explaining the potential and reach of SETI. If you want to know more, 
please head over to the University of East Anglia website, uea.ac.uk. And now... The East of England is well known for its tall tales of horrendous hairy horrors. Local legend has it that Black Shuck, an enormous, shadowy dog, has been spotted from the Fens to Felixstowe in the early hours of the morning, feasting on many an unwary traveller. The mysterious mutant mutt has become a myth that echoes through the centuries. A Beckles clergyman penned his account of the poltergeist pooch in 1577, entitled A Strange and Terrible Wonder. And speaking of a strange and terrible dog's breakfast, that must mean it's time for another... Crowd Sorcery. Yes, Crowd Sorcery. Where we've not just put an awful amount of work into one pun... Oh no, we found our frights this week, and we found them in two very distinct places. So, let's crank up our very own mystery machine for a trip to the Wild East, where locals give fearful glances and the marshlands hold hidden terrors for the unwary. First to make the ward sign against evil is Richard Powell OBE, environmental and charity advisor and independent chair. His perfect fright night is a full moon walk across Weaver's Way to Burnie Marshes. Richard says, Walking on a nature reserve in winter, in full moon, really does heighten the senses, as ghostly shadows appear from the trees and barns. The sounds of wildlife on a winter's night also set the blood racing. A real-life experience, without a doubt. Who are? Richard also says, a, uh, a trip onto Yarmouth is only for the hardy but he doesn't say whether that's a strong recommendation or a stern warning. Experienced housing and leisure architect, or should that be experienced haunted housing and terror architect, <laughs> Matt Wood finds his fear in mysterious structures with dread anxiety pouring from every stone. No, not the Palace of Westminster, but St. Bennet's Abbey, set in drizzly winter twilight Mist rising from the marshes and a shiver running down Matt's spine just thinking about it. If you prefer your scares in an urban setting, Norwich has a truly terrifying pedigree. For instance, it's a very little-known fact that one of Simon Hughes's official duties as Director of Property at Norfolk County Council is that he's also the council's official exorcist. Yeah, for example... Simon knows all the hotbeds of spirit activity in the county, such as Norwich Castle. For instance, executed prisoners were not allowed their names on their gravestones, just their initials. And, Simon says, the storerooms at the castle are full of enough... <clears throat> curiosities. ...to fill several Scooby-Doo episodes. Now, <clears throat> if you want to know why Simon keeps his duties as Norfolk County Council's chief exorcist so deep on the down low, it's because I made it up. And I would have gotten away with it too, if it wasn't for you meddling listeners. Ruby, Ruby, Roo! 
And, speaking of dressing up in costume to commit a dastardly deed, spooky segue time! <laughs> Michelle Chambers, business development manager at Chaplin Farrant, wishes to warn all you day dwellers that she and the Chaplin Farrant team will be dressed to kill on the streets of Norwich on Friday night. Don't panic, dear listener. If you want to ward off a shambling, groaning, gurgling gaggle of architects, show them a picture of King Charles visiting Lincoln Plaza. Or, failing that, fling a flying buttress at him. Michelle can neither confirm nor deny she'll be taking in Norwich Ghost Walks. That's www.ghostwalksnorwich.co.uk, which she says is a great way to see the spooky side of the city. The Ghost Hunter host takes you on a journey through the most haunted areas of the city where you'll hear tales of many lost spirits and poltergeists who are still seen and heard to this very day. And on that walk through the dark underbelly of the city of Norwich, you may encounter the East of England's answer to Laurie Strode or indeed Buffy the Vampire Slayer in Gemma Hoskins, development manager at the Norfolk and Norwich Festival, who has survived the terrors of Augustine Stewart House in Tombland, the former home of Norfolk and Norwich Festival, only to be rehoused in the Norwich Guildhall, which Gemma seems to think represents a marginal improvement at best. Alas, there is no truth in the wicked rumour I just started that Gemma has to keep a sharpened stake in her desk and that, as a precaution, the water cooler has been blessed by the Bishop of Norwich. And with that... Episode 41 of Eastern Promise reaches its final destination. Thank you so much to Ros Bird, Belinda Clark, Fiona Lettis, Douglas Cuff, Professor Gerard Parr, and the lovely people at Carter Jonas, Ridgeon Partners, and Greater Anglia for supporting the Eastern Promise Great Train Adventure. Next week, I'll be talking to David Powells. Until very recently, the editor of Norfolk's paper of record, the Eastern Daily Press, and getting a valedictory word from a man who has in many ways been the heart of the county. We'll learn more about his first steps into journalism, why the East of England is like a football team, and how David honed his skills as a master of disguise, thwarting the evil agents of the national news media. Not one to miss. Thank you, as always to Eastern Promise's very own Dr. Frankenstein, Engineer 49, who can bring nearly any form of electronic equipment back from the dead. Most of all, thank you to you for listening. I really am thrilled to have had your company. I'll be back again soon, but until then, bye for now. <laughs>